And then, Dr. Heavystoner, um, I just, I was in this bar and they were only serving these milkshakes, but they were, they were all licorice based and it was really weird. And I said to Batman, can we go somewhere else? And he said, no. And uh, I, what does that mean? Ah, uh, well, um, we're actually going to have to pick this up next time, but it's a very interesting dream. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we are, unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see, see you out and, uh, we'll see you again next week, Paul. Yeah. Oh, well, but before I go though, how am I doing? I mean, am I getting anywhere? How much longer do you think this will take? <sighs> to be honest, we have, we still have some work to do to get to the bottom of uh, your DCOC. Just ballpark, what do you reckon? <sighs> it feels like it's going to be a million months. What? Hello and welcome to DCOCD, the DC Events Podcast, where we're looking at every single DC event from Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1985 to the present day, wherever we'll be up to when we get there, so we'll have to wait and see. But today, the event uh, merry-go-round has dropped us off at DC 1 Million, which came out in 1998. And uh, this one was written by Grant Morrison. It had art by Val Simix with uh, inks by Prentice Rollins, uh, letters by Ken Lopez, and colours by Pat Garrett. And it was all edited by Dan Raspler. And, of course, there were many, many, many tie-ins. So, Mike, what do you think this one is about? Well, Paul, DC One Million is about uh, the Justice Legion A from the year 85,271, travelling back to present day or the late 90s, to invite the Justice League of our era to a special celebration in the future, that being the return of the prime Superman from his 15,000-year exile in the heart of the sun. However, disaster strikes as a plot to wipe out the Superman legacy takes effect due to the millennia-long schemes of Solaris, the living sun, aided by the immortal Vandal Savage. Good lord. Wow, yeah, well, that's, it's quite a handful of an event. There's a lot going on, there's a lot of moving pieces. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's interesting to see what life is like in the year 885271. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. called the 853rd century, that's sure. Oh, very nice, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, we, I long for this ride today. We have our semi-OCD, Abel Padilla, and he's done such a fantastic job. He's given us more than just scores. So uh, Abel is going to take us through what the scope of this uh, event is based on the omnibus. So take it away, Abel. This thing is massive. It has 33 of the 34 crossover issues, the original miniseries issues, plus Booster Gold 1 million, which came out after this series was published, This volume also contains a couple of other stories written for Batman Superman magazine just to show that what went on in DC 1 million hadn't been forgotten. The one issue that wasn't included in this volume was a copy of Young Heroes in Love 1 million, but I was able to find that on Comixology. Yeah, so I... I I must admit, I didn't read all of this for this occasion. I own probably like 90% of this event, and and I think I read about maybe 55% of it. (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, but I, I picked and cho- chose, and certainly I knew, you know, I remembered where the the best bits to read were, etc. So, you know, that, certainly that do, uh, stood me well to get through it. Um, yeah. What about you, Mike? Uh, I have to admit, I've only read the collected trade, uh, which has got the the main four issue miniseries and. 
bits and pieces from some of the tie-ins, uh, but I do also have uh, the Detective Comics and the Hitman issues from this oh, event as well. Hitman issue. The Hitman issue is hilarious. It's so funny. And um, apparently the note that Garth Ennis was given about his contribution to this event was to take the piss. And he did a wonderful job of that. <laughs> he had a particular go at some of the other Bloodlines characters. Uh, <laughs> Poor gunfire. <laughs> Poor gunfire, yeah. Anyway, everyone who knows this issue knows exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. 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 But um, usually we would discuss what type of event this one is, but uh, Abel has some thoughts about that, and they're very well reasoned. So let's throw to Abel again. I'd classify this event as an occupier. In my mind, this is a classic annual event type crossover. It was a pre-crisis on Infinite Earth's tradition to have the JLA meet the JSA every summer to handle some crisis which threatened both Earth 1 and Earth 2, and all the events would have been contained within the pages of JLA without expanding out into other books. In this age of decompressed comics, that's no longer possible, so we get an event out of it. In this case, Morrison twisted around by having the JLA become the legacy team as they meet their future counterparts. This series is essentially a big Justice League story, with a lot of tie-ins which may or may not be necessary for understanding the core event. Morrison also throws in elements during this crossover, which lean the story into a fixer category. When Morrison started work on JLA, we'd been reading about 10 years worth of Bwahaha Justice League era stories. During the initial run of Morrison's JLA, Fans had been asking about characters from the previous era. In this series, Morrison answers these questions. Blue Beetle is given a solid cameo during the sequences in Montevideo. Beetle and Booster were the Joey and Ross of the previous era, almost to the point where people seemed to forget that they had lives before they formed the Justice League. Beetle is solidly returned to the serious-minded science hero persona, which seemed to have been largely glossed over during the previous incarnation. His jokey knucklehead persona is completely ignored, as we see an aspect of him that might not have been seen since the cancellation of his own book. Another thing which Morrison fixes in this sto- in this miniseries is Superman. Since the crisis, Superman has scaled down a lot in both scope and power level. My recollection of the Superman stories at this time was that there was a real nose-to-the-grindstone feeling to the stories relating to the never-ending battle for truth and justice with a lot of the soap operatic elements that kept it chugging along from month to month. It was getting a little dull. The miniseries helped restore some of the classic epic grandeur to the Man of Steel where there was something extra special about him in relation to everyone else. In this series, everyone's reminded that Superman is, dare I say it, super special. He survived into the 853rd century, and this mini was meant as a celebration of that. When most of the other leaguers are dead and gone in the 853rd century, OG Superman's still there to inspire everyone. Interesting points there. Um, I'll agree it's an occupier, um, but I will say it's to me it's a bit of a vanity project. I think it's um, a bit of a love letter from Grant Morrison to the idea of uh, legacy heroes, and um, there's a bit of optimism in there, but it's done in that typically unique Grant Morrison way. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's part vanity, part occupier for me. Mm. 
And what do you think were the biggest deals in it for you? I mean, the best bits. Where, where did you go with those? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm going to have to say the overall sense of optimism with the 853rd century stuff. The fact that uh, the heroes are still out there watching out for us and, you know, leading by example. Um, I liked that. I liked the future Starman's uh, betrayal. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and the fact that, you know, he basically admitted everything to the guy that started the Starman legacy. I, I liked that issue in the story as well. Um what about you? Um, oh, it's got some great bits. Uh, the, in the, the JLA 1 million issue, uh, there's a fantastic fight between Barda and um, the Wonder Woman of the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, just an awesome fight. And I, I think the women come off really well in this one, like the fact that Huntress solely comes up with the plan that um, defeats Solaris at the end, you yeah. know, that, uh, tricks him. Um, that's a really good bit but throughout the thing i mean i find this this event moves like the clappers uh the main book itself it it's so lean there's no fat on it at all and it's just you know it it scorches along and you know yeah yeah there's no stopping for exposition and everything everything is done with action around it etc and you know just the fact bang you've got nuclear armageddon in montevideo and then you've got a flashback to show how vandal savages caught all these heroes and basically put them in rocket reds and using them as weapons and then bam from that there's the virus in the world and everyone's going a bit mental mm-hmm. and everyone's paranoid and the justice legion are trying to solve everything and everyone's fighting with them because they're suspicious and it's it but one of the things i love about it is it just juxtaposes the, the heroes of today with the heroes of the future and it shows them to be worthy and just as good. You know, they all go to the, the future and, you know, they kick ass. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's really good. And I mean, I know Grant Morrison can get, his plots can get away from him a bit and <laughs> you think. <laughs> And quite often I read Grant Morrison stuff and I come away going, well, I feel a bit dumb, yeah. you know, because I'm not fully getting this or, you know, I'm, you know, grasping 10% of this that sticks up above the surface and missing 90% or, you know, just not getting my head around it. This isn't the case with this one. Like, all the pieces are there. And I think there's some real interesting um, mechanics in this crossover that some really interesting parts get played out in really different ways. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, throw a line saying... John Fox, the Flash of the Future, saying his time gauntlets got stolen. And then, you know, if you read the Kronos issue, which I know you didn't, but that is all about the stealing of those gauntlets yeah. and them being used to thwart, uh, you know, this evil dictator in uh, this sort of middle century between things who's got World World 28 or whatever. Um <laughs> Kronos uses the time gauntlets and sabotages them, and he's a real dick to John Fox who comes to get him. But all of it is on the way to the time gauntlets ending up in Vandal Savage's hands at the end. And Yeah. And that isn't the whole point of that issue, and that's just the end result that you don't even see play out there. And things like the decision to make Solaris... so. There's this virus that's going to kill everyone. It's going to destroy all the machines. And the only way to stop it is to build a computer that's smart enough to work out the solution. And it turns out that um, the virus isn't a virus. It's Solaris's personality, mm-hmm. which downloads into the computer that they build. So it's just, whoa, I love it. Nothing like a predestination paradox. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, great stuff. I did enjoy seeing the Justice Leaguers that were left behind sort of stepping up to the plate and dealing, like, whilst the the main seven are off trapped in the future, people like Steel and Barter and Plastic Man and Zoriel are all stepping up and just 
kicking butt and trying to do the right thing as well. And, and along with Martian Manhunter, I think they got some great time in the spotlight in this as well, which was really cool to see for me. Yeah, there's little things here and there that if you read all, all the tie issues, I'm not saying um, you're going to get wonderful stuff out of every single one, but there are some that are important. They're not so important. They derail the story if you haven't read them, but they are important to the story and they work really well. And there's just like at the end of one issue, there's this throwaway bit where um, the Superman of the future says to Lois, oh, I need a sample of human DNA. Can I take some blood? And he puts it into the supercomputer they're building, which is Solaris. Mm -hmm. And that plays out at the end where Lois's DNA is inside Solaris. So, you know, and they can resurrect Lois from it. And it's just yep. elegant, elegant and clever. And, I think I would love to see the story Bible for this that um, Morrison developed because the tie-in issues, they're really good. I mean, on the whole, I think they're really clever and fun and important things happens in them more often than not. And some of them are just downright weird and delightful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, What did you think of the Resurrection Man issue? Um, I really enjoyed that, actually. I think, see, for me... One problem I have with this storyline is the use of Vandal Savage. Ah. Okay, I think Vandal Savage's stuff uh, with the rocket red suits and, and the Titans and the Montevideo being destroyed, I think that's all kind of a distraction. And to me, it didn't add a lot to the story. But when you get to the future and Mitch Shelley is facing off against Vandal Savage in the future there, I really enjoyed that issue. Yeah. And I think it would have been a bit more of a surprise kick in the pants if that was where Vandal first appeared and you learnt that he'd been he'd allied himself with Solaris to help cause chaos and have something. But it just seemed like Vandal being Vandal, okay, he wants to rule the world again, oh, he's doing some stuff. Because with the Owlman virus, that's more than enough for the heroes in the story to have to deal with. And it, it just, uh, I don't know, it just seemed like it didn't connect for me. But the, the Resurrection Man issue, the, the fact that he, uh, you know, only dies for a few seconds and then and can then choose which power he gets, that was awesome. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah, and that was all new to the Resurrection Man book at the time because, you know, he... He'd never had a history with Vandal Savage in the ongoing comic, so, so it was all quite a revelation. Um, I'm going to disagree with you about Vandal Savage. I think thematically he's a villain who really works well in this because he's a man of the past and the future and mm -hmm. the far future. So he gets to be everywhere just by being so, you know, long lived and immortal. Mm -hmm. Um, so I can see the point of view. And also they need someone just who's more of an immediate, um, agent of um, Solaris's in the present, you know, even if it's unwitting. Yeah. But uh, but I love love the elegance that, you know, Vandal Savage is at ground zero of the nuclear strike at the end of the whole story. Okay, that was good, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and with the note saying, you've been conned by Kronos. <laughs> yeah. When he uses the, the gauntlets. But, yeah, well, see, that's the thing that bugs me, is that Starman from the future, he's come back to the pre to our present and he kind of is Solaris's agent so kind of don't he seemed more like Solaris's go-to guy to, to get stuff done to to set things up for the future and it just seemed like uh, I don't know obviously I'm reading it differently that Vandal was just like he just seemed to be a distraction whereas the Ferris Knight Starman. He was like, okay, I've got to go visit the, the originator of the Starman line and get the, that Knight element, which is Kryptonite, and I'm going to go and plant that on Mars. It, it, he, to me, seemed a more effective ally in our present day 
for Solaris than Vandal did. He's emo evil, though. He's not hardcore evil. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, his entire motivation is, I want to be free of this legacy that I'm trapped in. And it's like, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to do the family business. Yeah. That that was another thing. We, we spoke about this earlier, how I noted that in one issue, Ferris Knight said that his mother is who he inherited the mantle from. But then in another issue, he said it was his father. And that drove me a little bit nuts. It was like, uh-huh. come on, just uh, continuity error. But anyway, uh, amongst uh, for one thing, amongst the entire event and the massive crossover that it was, because it involved every DC issue that came out that month. Um, that's one small nitpick, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I think you're being super picky there, but I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, shall we um, talk about the legacy of it? So, I mean, the, the main thing that came out in the immediate future of this book was um, an Our Man ongoing that went for two years. And it's, um, I believe it's a bit of an under-radar book for most people, but okay. it's bloody awesome. It's a really terrific ongoing. It's really good. It's written by Tom Pyre, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so good. Excellent. Um, highly recommend it. And it had art by Rags Morales pre-identity crisis um and it's it's a fantastic series i wish someone would collect it because it's um beautiful yeah it's one i have set aside and it's one i reread every few years so and it stands alone without this as well so okay but apart from that there's lots of stuff that grant morrison never lets go go of and (laughs) yeah so i think the uh the justice legion uh the superman of the future particularly he i think he came into play in uh all-star superman yeah and his new 52 action comics run and things like that so the real legacy is these are you know pieces that uh, grant morrison just likes to bring out of the box and play with Mm. like even in the chronos issue um chronos is in a scene with the chronovore and that comes back in all-star superman and things like that (laughs) but Beyond that, there's a real respect and love for Superman and that sort of just imbues Grant Morrison's work whenever he yeah. gets involved with that. But, yeah, I it sort of died out a bit. Like, it really bugs me. Like, in this, we see that Vandal Savage is without an eye for millennia, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it really bugs me that no one showed him without an eye in the future. <laughs> yeah. Right. When, when he appeared. I mean, I was reading... Uh, now he's nitpicking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Scott Snyder uh, Justice League books, and it's like, why can't he have an eye patch? It would make no difference, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it would be a really nice bit of continuity maintenance. But anyway, yes, I'm being picky now. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. What's the name of this show? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, there's lots of love and respect for Superman. I mean, it goes on about the whole Superman legacy, um, and, and the fact that the, the gimmick for this uh, storyline is that it was set... You know, one million months uh, in the future from when Action Comics started in 1938. And that's where they get the, you know, the whole idea for the 853rd century. Because if every DC comic had been regularly published one million months in the future after Action Comics, that's where we'd be at. Um, but yeah, as you said, the stuff reappears in All Star Superman. Uh, it's men- Morrison mentions it uh, again um, in Batman 700, where he's got the one million Batman and Robin the Toy Wonder. Oh, okay. And there's also, um, they, they did a story arc in the Superman Batman comic from about eight years ago, I think, from 2010, um, where it had a time-travelling villain, uh, Epoch, battling Batman and Superman across various time periods. And, and the those characters from the one million storyline appeared in that as well. So, yeah, there's 
There's some nice legacy stuff. It's not like... I, I think this is also a bit of a fan favourite amongst EC fans. It doesn't get mentioned a lot, but I just think it's well... You know, people really enjoy it when they read it. It's, it's mm. like you said, the, the main story is a cracker and it just goes from pillar to post at lightning speed. But then there's all this other stuff in all the other issues that came out that month that you can go and explore as well. So it's hmm. it's really cool. Yeah. Anyway, shall we get into this scoring? <sighs> I'm a little bit nervous about this. <laughs> but sure, yes, let's let's do it. Okay, so Abel uh, Padilla is going to give us scores as well. So uh, we will, uh, I'll intersperse his scores in amongst ours and we will uh, develop a picture of the score as we go ahead. So Mike, what, what's, what have you gotten for eventiness on this one? For eventiness, I am going to give DC 1 million uh, a score of 8 out of 10. Um, it, it was a massive event. It took in every DC comic that came out in that month that this event ran. And, yeah, it was just... It was massive in scope. I mean, you had a, basically a whole new galaxy of things and, and people to go and visit uh, across. And it had a, a massive storyline that was had the villain going to wipe out DC's biggest hero and his entire legacy. And it ended up... The story ended up being a love letter to that character. So I, I think eight's a decent score from me for this. I don't think it's decent enough because I'm going to give it a 10. <laughs> Oh, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. I, I just think this one is, it, it's so well done. And as far as pulling in the whole DC universe, everyone gets a one million issue. And, uh, you know, people really did some outstanding work across these. So, you know, there was a great opportunity. It was a great story engine for people to tap into. I think the, the important stuff dances nimbly between the main story and the side stories, but, mm-hmm. and it, it never falls over. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. I, I think it's, it's just a candy shop for, for your brain. It's <laughs> excellent. <laughs> so I'm going to give it a 10, but, nice. um, all right, let's see what Abel thinks. Okay. As far as eventiness goes, I've rated a nine. Pretty high, I know. But this event has some legs. It pushes the timeline of the DC universe farther into the future than we've seen before. I think the farthest that we'd seen of the DC Universe was the 64th century, which was where Abracadabra, the Flash's foe, originally came from. That is, unless you count the Time Trapper Citadel at the end of time from the Legion of Superheroes. Thanks for that, Abel. Yeah, that's a fair score. Now let's look at the writing. Now, I think Grant Morrison does a terrific job on this one, and I gave it a 9. Oh, I, do, I just think it's got unfettered imagination. There's some spectacle that feels like spectacle, unlike, you know, when you read comics and they say, this is a spectacle, and you know, but it doesn't feel like it, but this does. It's epically goofy, <laughs> which is a real... <laughs> That's a real hard thing to reach, but it is. You know, it's sentimental without being cloying. It's, yeah, I just think it's masterfully written. And as an event, it's beautifully structured. And other writers and artists get to do really interesting things that aren't normal. They're not like every other event that's been down the pipeline. Mm. Yeah, you can show a future version of the team. You can show how someone from the past is coping in the future. You can show someone from the future coping in the past. And, and. Yeah, I, I just dug it. I just thought the writing across the board was really good. So a nine for that. Mike, what about you? I'm going to give it a seven. I I didn't hate this story, but I didn't love it as much as you. I think, you know what you were saying earlier about sometimes you read Grant Morrison and you come away from it feeling dumber? I didn't feel 
dumber. I just kind of felt like, uh, okay, yeah, it was. It had a lot of cool moments, but the stuff with Vandal Savage in the present day just bugged me. But you're right, it, Candy Shop for the Brain is a good way to describe it. But just a lot of this, it was some stuff that just didn't win me over entirely. So I'm gonna, yeah, I'll stick with seven. Hmm. Okay, and Abel, what have you got? Next up is writing. The writing is kind of a mixed bag what with the main book, and then all the tie-ins, so I'll treat them separately. For the main book, I give a 9. On the whole, Morrison does a great job. He focuses on the core storyline, both in the miniseries and in the one millionth issue of JLA, to keep the story going. A solid 9, I'd say. And now for the tie-ins. Let me start with the bad. As disappointing as it is for me to say, across the line, the Batman family books are some of the worst of the lot. The Bat books were deep in the midst of their cataclysm, no man's land storyline, and their attention seemed pretty fixed on that. I know I just read them, but they didn't stick with me at all. I recall a series of chase scenes as though they couldn't wait to race out of the crossover and back to their regular stories in progress. From there, it gets much better. Tie-ins are a real time capsule for the books published at the time. Most of the regular series writers are on board for the tie-ins. So we got Ron Mars on Green Lantern, William Messner Loeb's on Wonder Woman, James Robinson on Starman, John Ostrander on Martian Manhunter, and so on. I'd forgotten how much I liked Kronos. Such a good book, worth picking up in the cheap boxes. Ditto with Superboy. The Superman family books are generally on board with the crossover. It's so solidly tied in with Superman's future, and they alternate between relating stories of present-day Superman and Superman 1 million. DC 1 million takes place after the Electric Superman and Millennium Giants events, so I'm sure the Superman editorial office was happy to get a boost wherever they could get it. The Legion books offer some very clever future Legionnaires, which I wish had appeared again because they were so clever. Also, I'd like to publicly thank Peter David for his Young Justice story. It really cheered me up after reading some humdrum Batman stories. Overall, I'd give the tie-ins a 7. I might have offered a higher rating, but those Bat books really rained on the parade. Averaging both scores, we get an 8. Wow, another score from Abel. That's a good one. Okay, now... Mike, what what do you want to say about the art and the covers? Um, I enjoyed the art and, and the covers. Uh, I like uh, the covers for the miniseries itself, the main story, how they were just really simply done. There was one where it had Solaris sort of hovering at the bottom section of the cover, looking menacing. That was really cool. Uh, overall, I, I enjoyed the art. There was lots of exciting stuff going on, both in the future and the past. I'm going to give it a 7 overall, based mainly on what is given in the trade paperback, which is obviously the main way I read this. So, yeah, nothing like stood out to me overall and grabbed my eyeballs, but there's nothing I really disliked either. So, I, I hate to say wishy-washy, but yeah, I'm just kind of on the fence with 1 million. So, I think I'm going to give it a 7 for the art. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm a bit higher than you, so... Uh, I'm not talking about drugs, but yeah, I, I think the art's really um, quite good, particularly in the miniseries. I think Val Semix does a terrific job. Mm-hmm. I think he's quite underrated in this story because 
everything that uh, happens in the story is really clearly conveyed through his art. The storytelling is really strong. You know, the visual flow in the action scenes is terrific. And then you've got some of the time stuff. You've got people like uh, Norm Brofogel doing Superman issue. You've got Brian Hitch. Um, you've got Greg Land, Howard Porter, Peter Snayberg on the Starman stuff. It's 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 gorgeous, some of it. Uh, you know, some of it's workmanlike, but yeah. none of it is you know, substandard. Uh, the, Tom Grummet does a fantastic Kirby riff on the Superboy issue. Um, John McRae is always great on Hitman, so, you know, there's no such thing as a bad, oh, yeah. bad issue of Hitman. And, yeah. I mean, even the regular books, like the weird ones like uh, Young Heroes and Love, they have great uh, art. And there's <laughs> J.H. Williams III does the um, Kronos issue. So mm. it's... Sure, it's just awesome. Uh, yeah, it's great. Actually, I will make a slight amendment to my previous comment. I think my favourite issue in terms of art was the Resurrection Man one uh, with Butch Geis on the art. I re- that was probably my favourite one out of all the DC One Million stuff I've written. Ooh, okay, so, there we go. Yeah. All right, Abel, take this one home now. And now on to art. In the main book, the art is handled by Val Samix. I knew him from his work on the Demon. I really liked his artwork because it had that Tom Grummet, Cary Gamble quality to it. And I really liked it a lot. So I'm giving it a solid, a solid 8. As for the tie-ins, the covers and frontispieces feature 3D art throughout all the book. They were created using a software package called KPT Bryce. And I know because I used it at the time. KPT Bryce was also used to create some of the 3D images during the Brainiac 13 storyline in the Superman books. The tie-in books are a real mixed bag. Here's where the Omnibus collection comes in handy, because it's a real time capsule for the DC books at the time. We've got Jerry Ordway on Power of Shazam, Scott McDaniel on Nightwing, Peter Snayberg on Starman, we even get Brian Hitch on Green Lantern, Norm Brayfogle and Ron Lim are on Superman books, Tom Grummet is on Superboy. Tom Mandrake is on Martian Manhunter. J.H. Williams is doing art on Kronos. And we're not trying to slight anyone, but there's a lot of really nice art in here, including some really great Mike Wiringo, Flint Henry, and Cully Hamner art in the Secret Files book. But overall, I give it a solid 7. Averaging both scores, the overall art gets a 7.5. Okay, thanks for that. Abel, now, now we're not going to let you do a half score, so I'm going to round that up, Abel. Anyway, let's get into the impact and legacy. So I think this is the weakest part of this is... Uh, yeah. It's neither that impactious or legacious. <laughs> are those real words? <laughs> they are now. <laughs> Ventiness is a word, then they're a word, yeah. True, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, the longevity of this series is the fact that it's written by Grant Morrison and everything by Grant Morrison sells, so they will keep it in print and, you know, do things like Uh that. But, uh, I don't think the, the tendrils of this story are much in the mainstream DC universe of today. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's sort of, it it lets the side down there. It's, it's a really cool story, but, um, I'm going to have to give it six for the impact and legacy. I think it's, it's not its strongest aspect. Mm, I agree with you in that, but my score is slightly worse in that I'm giving it a four for legacy. Um, as we said before, DC 1 million appears once in a blue moon in stuff like All Star Superman and Superman Batman and uh, another Morrison issue in Batman 700. But yeah, outside of that, eh, 
No, we, we don't really see it anywhere else other than, yeah, you know, when it's mentioned by fans that have read it. Um, it yeah, there's, there's no real ongoing stuff that came out of this, as far as I can tell and from what I've seen. So other people might have found other stuff. But yeah, so I, I think uh, I'm going to give it a four because it, it just sort of, it, it happened, it's a cool story, the gimmick's really cool uh, with the whole one million month thing. But other than that, there's not a lot. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and Abel, finally, with your thoughts on Impact Legacy. In researching this miniseries, I came across an article on Comics Alliance, which stated that the single character most affected by Crisis on Infinite Earths was Superman. In that one event, we get two Supermen who get their continuities wiped out, both the Earth-1 and the Earth-2. Since then the Superman office worked hard to build up a continuity for the post-crisis Superman that filled the giant shoes left by those two Supermen. Superman was still heavily tied to his older stories, as the creative team would redo older ideas and concepts for a new age. Because the stories would feel like updates on old ideas, it often felt like the creators were looking at the old toys for ways to reinvigorate the character after the whole Death of Superman event. So it's striking how the series gives Superman a boost by taking him someplace completely new and different and by offering a new adversary in the form of Solarius. Here's an epic that gives Superman a historic scope that stretches way into the future with the promise of future generations of Superman with their own adventures and powers. Vandal Savage is a great case that having a memorable appearance in a crossover event helps increase your profile for the future. He's been making regular appearances in DC Comics ever since then. He's also had a lot of later media appearances. He appeared in the Justice League cartoon, in Batman the Brave and the Bold, also in Young Justice. He was even in Smallville. And recently, he was in the CW shows. Another item which still sticks around today is the 853rd Century. Superman 1 million showed up in Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman, and he even made a brief appearance in the animated adaptation of that story. The 853rd Century also made a one-panel appearance in Scott Snyder's first issue of his new JLA series, so that was pretty exciting to see. And to close things out, we also got Our Man. We got a short-lived Our Man series out of this, which kept Snapper Carr on as a Rick Jones kind of sidekick. Anyway, after the Our Man series ended, he became one of the members of the all-new JSA, which was started by James Robinson, David S. Goyer, and Jeff Johns. You might have heard of some of those guys. So let's give the legacy a solid 8. Okay, so we've got all the scores in now, so let's do some uh, maths. And I'm going to hold my hand, Mike. Um, that's right. 33, 17. Carry that yeah, one. Okay, yeah. over there. Um, yeah. And yeah. I have a score of 76. 76. Ooh. So that pops it in eighth position on the table. So just above Underworld Unleashed and just below Wonder Woman The Contest. So, mm. hmm. That's very respectable. Yeah. 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 As you said once before, anything from like the 70 point mark upwards is is good value and good reading. And certainly rereading this, I was like, oh, I should go and buy the Omnibus. And I never buy Omnibuses. So, because I always. Wow. I mean, I basically own most of it. It's like, oh, but it's all in one book. 
that's the thing. Maybe I should get the omnibus, or maybe you can get it for me. Um, because, yeah, maybe I would appreciate DC 1 million more than I'd... I mean, I, don't, I, I still like it. I think it's a great, fun story, but maybe I would like it more if I read more of the tie-ins. Hmm. Anyway, if you want to see the the ladder, the scores all in their finest array, they are on the Comicosity website. Uh, just look for podcasts and you will see us. You won't see us. You'll see our shows or links to our shows. Yeah. And then you can hear the shows because there's links to the shows there as well. And But there's the ladder there and the table and you can, you know, sort and, and look at the scores and you can do it by what's the worst, what's the best, you know, and etc. And alphabetical if you feel like... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I think we're back with a waiting for doom next time, aren't we, Mike? And that's right. Yeah, and I think the next event, I uh, oh, I better start reading now. Is Batman and No Man's Land? <laughs> well, <laughs> you should have started a bit before now, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, this show is taking up a fair chunk of my spare time. Anyway, uh, if people want to get in touch with us, uh, they can send an email to dcocdcast at gmail.com. And, of course, there's Twitter at dcocdcast and um, Facebook, Waiting for Doom. You can find us all there. Where are you on Twitter, Mike? We haven't said that for a while. I'm on Twitter at AvantGarve. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter at Reading underscore H-I-X-6. And thanks once again to Abel. You can find Abel on Twitter at AbelPatzilla, and he's also there at Sphinx Magoo. So catch up with him. Yeah, but I think that's all for this show. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Paul. All right. That's, yeah, keep on eventing, everyone. Keep on eventing. (laughs) 